Well, do turn with me in your Bible this evening to Acts chapter 6 and to that passage that we read together a moment ago. Most of you know that I have only moved to North America after a bit of a hiatus of about 30 years. Last time I lived in North America was a long time ago. I hadn't reached that pivotal year where everything seems to change in your life. Some of you I know are heading towards it, that momentous point after which you are old and before which you feel young. And uh, I'm thinking, of course, of the age of 30, the very difficult age. Uh, we, have, we have special therapy groups for people who are hitting that age in the next little while that you can come to. Uh, but I was living here in Canada, actually, at that time. And while I was here, I got to know a guy called Kus Fici. Uh, he, uh, he and his family lived in a uh, town next to ours. Uh, we regularly met up with a bunch of others to study the Bible, to share our experiences together. We were kind of all young together. He was a bit older than me. He, he was about 30, actually. I, I thought he was really, really old. Uh, and uh, I was about mid-twenties and hoping I would never reach that great age. And we, we traveled up together. We traveled from Cambridge up to Toronto together and did some studies at Ontario Theological Seminary. And we had great times in the car. My memory of Coos is that he could have achieved anything in his life. He'd been, I think, very successful in business, but felt that God was perhaps calling him out of business to become a missionary, specifically to Thailand. Well, eventually, after I'd gone back to Scotland, Coos and family went to Thailand and established a Bible teaching ministry there. One day, as Coos was leading his Bible study, in his home, someone walked in and emptied a shotgun into his face and killed him immediately. Martyrdom is something the church has had to live with from the earliest times. And tonight we're going to be looking at the very first Christian martyr. Many of the liturgies of the church, whenever people gather together to worship God, they gather together very conscious that there is a whole assembly of angels, that we gather with all the angels of God in glory, but, but also that we gather with the great company of the martyrs. And we can never gather in Christian worship without remembering that we are part of that great array of saints of God who have paid for their loyalty to King Jesus by giving their lives. And it all starts with this man, Stephen. Now, the story of Stephen is important for a whole host of reasons. This is a landmark moment in the life of the early church. Jesus, you remember, had sent his apostles to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so far in the book of Acts, they have been witnessing in Jerusalem. Everything up to this point has been focused on the city of Jerusalem, on the impact of the gospel on that city, on, on the witness of the apostles on that city, of the signs and wonders performed by the apostles in that city. So far, nothing has actually moved beyond the city confines. And it is this story 
and the story of Philip in the next few chapters that is going to push the gospel out of the walls of Jerusalem into Judea and then into Samaria and precipitate a movement that will not stop until it has gone round the globe. This is a pivotal moment. And I want you to notice where it starts. It starts in Jerusalem and it starts with Stephen, the first Christian martyr. At the end of chapter uh, 7, uh, chapter 6, uh, we're told this, that the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's where things are going. That's in verse 7 of chapter 6. That's the, the last thing we're told before we come on to the story of Stephen. And it ends, literally, chapter 6, verse 7, ends the first panel of the book of Acts. And this next section, we're going to see the church expand from the city limits into Judea, Samaria, and elsewhere. The focus will be on four personalities, Stephen, Philip, and Saul. That's three, but I, I said four, so you can throw somebody else in there to make up the numbers. Uh, Stephen is already... I can't count. It's the evening. It's been a long day, okay? Uh, Stephen has already been introduced to us. He's been one of the first deacons. Uh, the, that's the, the first part of chapter 6. They'd been appointed to mercy ministry within the church. And uh, Stephen's name heads the list. And that signals his importance because we're going to be learning more about him. Uh, Philip is the next on the list. And he's the one we're going to hear about after Stephen. And this is a significant turning point in the life of the church. Now, interesting, isn't it, that it all starts with Stephen, who's been appointed with the others to care for the church's widows. He was chosen, we're told earlier, because he was characterized as of being of good repute. That means he had a good reputation with people not only in the church but outside in the community. There was nothing that you could nail on Stephen for his character was outstanding as far as the world knew. Now the focus is going to be on his ministry and on his martyrdom. By his words and by his death, he is going to magnify his Savior. Now here's the question. Why should we be interested in this man? Why does Luke take so long over his life? After all, he devotes the largest speech from anybody in the book of Acts, to Stephen. Uh, Stephen gets more airtime than Paul does or Peter does. Uh, we get notes of their sermons. We get the full text, if you like, of Stephen's sermon. Now, why does Luke figure that's important? After all, from a human point of view, this man is a failure. He has failed to persuade anybody of his uh, opponents of the truth of what he's been saying. He fails to make a defense when he's put on trial before the authorities. He, he fails to stop the tide of persecution against the church. He fails as a Christian. At least that's the idea that the world would have. The world does not like failures. So why should we be interested in Stephen? And the answer of the text is that Stephen had cottoned on to something. He had grasped something. He had grasped something of the truth of God, and he had a perspective on that truth that is going to serve the church well, 
not only in the days of the apostles, but us today. That's why we're going to be looking at some length at Stephen's sermon once we get to that. But tonight we're going to focus on this little section that we read, just in case anyone's really, really worried about why we started early tonight. He had grasped a truth that he was willing to die for. It was the truth as it is in Jesus. Hence, what he has to say is so important. We're told three things about Stephen in this passage. First of all, that he was equipped by God's Spirit, he was framed by God's enemies, and he was touched by God's glory. First of all, he was equipped by God's Spirit. The word to be full is used over and over again in reference to this man. And to be full of something in Bible terms means to be under the control of something, to be governed by something, governed and directed by something. And we're told several things about the equipment of this man. In verse 3, we're told that he was full of the Spirit and wisdom. That, that was something that all of these people had to have before they were appointed as deacons. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom, that we can appoint to this duty. So we start there. He's appointed as a deacon in the church. He has to have a good reputation with those outside as well as inside the church. But he is also to have this spiritual qualification. He is to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. The Spirit and wisdom define the content of the lives of these first deacons. These were people who were so governed by and directed by the Spirit, they were driven by the Spirit of God, and as a result, they made good decisions, they made wise decisions, they had good judgments, and they were marked by spiritual maturity. Because a deacon has to do more than simply dish out money to people who need it. To be a deacon requires wisdom and insight. To be a deacon uh, requires that a person be able to assess what a, a person's, an individual's problem really is. And to be able to address that problem and match the problem with the particular uh, provision that the church has made for that person. To be a deacon requires that you have wisdom and knowledge of Christ as well as wisdom and knowledge of people. And Stephen was full of wisdom. Secondly, in verse 5, we're told about Stephen that he was full of the Spirit and faith. Now all of these people who were appointed deacons have Greek names which suggest that either they were converts to Judaism or uh, they were converts to Christianity out of a Greek culture directly into Christianity. Stephen is a Greek name, and he comes from a Greek-speaking background. Therefore, he was a member of the Greek-speaking synagogue in Jerusalem, and he was particularly useful then in ministering to the people who were being neglected, we're told in verse 1, who were the Greek-speaking people, the Hellenists. So we don't know whether he was a converted Jew first and then became a Christian, or whether he was a visiting Greek-speaking person in the area. Probably he comes from a Greek-speaking Jewish background, a Jewish convert. And how did he become a person of faith? Well, he'd heard an announcement by the apostles. He'd heard the announcement of the facts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Maybe he'd gone on the tour of the tomb 
And maybe they had little tours they laid on, and they said, come and see the empty tomb, and there's where he was, and you'll notice he isn't there anymore. Why? Because we saw him alive. We spoke to him after his passion. He showed himself to be alive by many infallible proofs. So they demonstrated that Jesus was alive, and he listened to this. He listened to the offer of forgiveness in Christ. He listened to the promise of the Holy Spirit to all those who believed. And he responded to that. He'd received Christ for himself and he'd rested on Christ for his salvation. And he'd gone public. He'd been baptized publicly as a testimony. He had been baptized having the mark of God placed on him. And he'd sat with all the other disciples having the heavenly meal. And he'd heard the words, the language of the new covenant. This blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Stephen would have heard that and he'd responded to that. And he'd come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for himself. But not only that. Faith was not only what brought him in. It was faith that kept him in his relationship with Jesus as it does with all of us. Not only had he believed and rested on Christ for his salvation. But faith that is, his trust in God was the very tenor and the default setting of his life. He was full of it, full of faith. Faith touched every part of his life. And what does that kind of faith look like? We have a definition of that in Hebrews chapter 11. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the evidence or the conviction of things not seen. Stephen was convinced of spiritual realities. He saw the unseen things. Faith is the ability to see the invisible, to perceive events still unseen. And people who have faith like that, people who trust in the Lord Jesus in the midst of nothing, nothing to support what they believe, when all the, all the crutches have been pulled away and there is nothing externally in the external world to support or to back up what they believe. People who trust in the Lord Jesus in those kind of circumstances are the kind of people who launch out into uncharted waters. They're prepared to take risks for their faith in the Lord Jesus because they believe beyond what is seen. They believe beyond what is visible. And according to Hebrews 11, it's those kind of people who are prepared to die for Jesus. And it's those kind of people who die well for Jesus. Listen to what Hebrews says again. All these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Being full of faith means you share that kind of faith with those Old Testament believers. You're marked and characterized by seeing the invisible. And you're looking for a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. Your confidence does not lie in the paltry treasures of this world or in the pleasures of this world, but in the eternal realities of the heavenly kingdom. He was full of faith, this man which meant he would gladly sing Luther's great hymn, Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. Thy kingdom is forever. Full of the spirit and wisdom. Full of the spirit and faith. And in verse 8 we're told he was full of the spirit's grace and power. Look at verse 8. Stephen 
full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, no doubt when it says grace, it's telling you that his message was full of the grace of God in the gospel. The free gift of life that God gives freely to unworthy sinners. But grace is not just something that brings you in to the Christian life. Grace keeps you going in the Christian life. Grace rubs off. The grace of God rubs off on people who know it in their experience so that they become gracious. They become gracious people. I think it was John Wesley who said on one occasion that the grace of God turns men into gentlemen without the benefit of going to dancing lessons. Okay. Partly you did that in order to learn how to be a gentleman back in the 18th century. Uh, maybe we should try that. So grace rubs off uh, on us, and this man was full of grace and power, which meant he was like Jesus. We're told about Jesus, aren't we, in John chapter 1, that he was full of grace and truth. That Jesus was marked by gracious words. And the apostles in chapter 2 of Acts, and Moses in chapter 7, and David in chapter 7 are all characterized by grace. But when you put grace and power together, you're talking about spiritual enablement, empowerment. He ministers through the enabling power of the grace of God. Stephen is given special grace to perform works of power that immediately, as we'll see, associate him with Jesus, and he's enabled to speak words of grace to people. Let's just unpack those two things for a moment. Verse 8. What does he do with grace and power? Well, he performs mighty deeds. He performs mighty deeds. So his ministry is marked by signs and wonders. Why are we told that? We're told that because in the book of Acts, what does that make him like? Well, immediately he is being marked as belonging to the company of the apostles. They were the ones who were doing signs and wonders. Now Stephen is doing signs and wonders. He must belong to them. He must be part of them. He must have a connection to the apostles of Jesus. And if he has a connection to the apostles of Jesus, who went everywhere performing signs and wonders, then he must have a connection to Jesus. That is precisely what Peter said on the day of Pentecost. Men and men of Israel, he said, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So when Stephen's doing these signs and wonders, what we are supposed to read into that is that people immediately notice that he belonged to the apostolic circle. He is part, therefore, of the apostolic church. He is no lone ranger, no individualist, out on his own, but he is looking, looking for all the world like Jesus, doing great wonders and signs among the people. And like Jesus and the apostles, he was learning, he is going to learn, that signs and wonders by themselves are not a magic bullet. Some people talk as if the church today recovered these signs and wonders. That would be the end of all the dullness and the drabness and the depression 
and the lack of numbers and the lack of growth. And if only we could have these things, well, wouldn't it be wonderful? There'd be revival and renewal and all the rest of it. You look at Jesus. There was arrest, suffering, death. You look at the apostles already in the book of Acts. Arrest and they're whipped. And now you see Stephen. I'm not sure the church today is ready for signs and wonders because we're not ready for martyrdom. Signs and wonders are not the magic bullet. What we find discover here, what we discover here, look at verse 9, is that some of those who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and uh, that's made up of a number of different races, rose up and disputed with Stephen. So there's this movement of reaction against Stephen from the very ethnic group that he represents and the very synagogue that he's connected to. This word freedman here actually is is a Latin word that's been transposed right over into Greek. So apparently this synagogue was a synagogue that was founded by freed Jewish slaves from Italy where Latin was spoken. And they were joined by other Jews of the dispersion whose, la- la- whose first language was Latin. People like places like Cyrene in North Africa, Alexandria in Egypt, Cilicia and Asia in Asia Minor or modern Turkey. People who came from a, 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 culti- uh, sorry, a pagan and decadent culture. And they would have come to Jerusalem because they'd been converted to Judaism and they would have moved, they would have moved to Jerusalem because they would have wanted to be near the center of Jewish life and they would want to be away from all of that cultural decadence that they'd left behind and they would have wanted to enjoy particularly the traditional cultural life of Judaism represented there, the very heart of the religion by the temple and the synagogue. They would have been fiercely committed to the ancient religion of Judaism and to the traditions particularly of Judaism. And so these are the ones that rose and disputed with Stephen. And what's interesting about the verb that's used there is that this is exactly the same verb that's used of Jesus himself when he was challenged by the authorities. People were always disputing with him. And here they are now disputing with Stephen as he performed mighty deeds. And verse 10, as he proclaimed mighty words. These opponents found Stephen's message deeply disturbing. They saw it as a threat, really, to their basic and historic tenets of Judaism. And it's not difficult to see what might have precipitated their concerns. After all, we've just read in verse 7, the word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, a great many of the priests. Now, here are these people fiercely loyal to Judaism. And what are they discovering? They're discovering that right to the very center of Jewish life, In the temple itself, people who were Jewish functionaries at the very heart of the religious life of the Jewish faith are converting to this new movement, this Christian movement. Can you imagine what they would have felt? They would have felt that they were under threat by this new movement. And so they argue with Stephen. Verse 10 tells us, that they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. 
He was speaking with a wisdom that was not natural. It wasn't something that came from inside him. It wasn't something he learned at seminary. This was a wisdom that was given to him by his own invincible Lord Jesus. That so silenced his opponents. Jesus, who silenced his opponents, so that they no, long, no longer dared to ask him any question, we're told in Luke 20, verse 40. Jesus, who had promised his disciples in Luke chapter 21, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So Stephen is merely proving the promise of the Lord as he argues for the gospel. Now, can you imagine? Just imagine for a moment. What is there about the gospel that, that, that is arguable against? Think about what the gospel does for people. Here is, here is an offer of eternal life based on the work of another person given freely to those who take it. We're not asking you to go through hoops. We're not asking you to do great religious exercises. We're not asking you to become a martyr. We're not asking you to do any of those things. We're saying to you, here's an offer of eternal life. I mean, that's the older you get, the more attractive that looks. You, you know you're not going that way. Naturally, you're going the opposite way. Every wrinkle that you notice in the morning reminds you that's the direction you're going in. So it's an offer of eternal life, and it's based not on what you do, but on the work of another. And it's for everyone who'll take it. And think about what Christianity accomplishes. What does it do for people? It lifts people. It gives people hope. I'm, I'm, I'm using the very basic language of the world here. I'm not talking theology, but simply looking at the thing objectively. What does it do? It tells us to love our neighbors. It tells us to love one another. It tells us to love our enemies. It tells us not to curse our enemies, but to bless our enemies. It tells us not to take revenge on our enemies, but to do them good. And so if they're thirsty, give them water to drink. If they're hungry, give them food to eat. Think about what Christianity does. It shows hospitality to strangers. It tells us not to murder or steal or covet, but to turn the other cheek, to go the second mile, not to keep a record of wrongs. I mean, what is it about that that people don't like? What, what is it about that that people don't like? Isn't that the way we'd like everybody to be? And it's very hard to, to react to this, you see. This is the kind of thing that Stephen was saying, and it silenced his enemies. He was a man equipped by God's Spirit. Secondly, he was a man who was framed by God's enemies. What do you do when you can't win the argument? Well, you shout louder. Sometimes if you're a Christian, you get your Bible out and you bash them in the head with it. But I don't advise that. Like the preacher who had at the side of his notes, argument weak, shout here. Now that's not the way we, that's not the way we win arguments. So what do you do when you're, when you're not getting your way? This is what these people did. Verse 11, they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. The language, the verb about secretly instigating there implies, implies bribing witnesses to lie. 
And specifically, what they're alleging is that Stephen has broken, spoken blasphemous words about God, contra to Exodus 22 that says, Do not blaspheme God or curse a ruler of your people. So what had he done? Objectively, what had he done? He had not said anything slanderous about Moses. In fact, if you read chapter 7, verses 17 to 44, you'll find that he honors Moses highly. No, what he had done, according to his accusers, was to speak against the law and the temple. Look what they say. They stirred up the people and the elders and said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, that is the temple, and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Two charges. He speaks against Moses by speaking against Moses' law. And he speaks against God by speaking against the temple. And what they're doing, of course, is they're misrepresenting. This is because there is no normal logical argument against Christianity. The only way you can really argue against Christianity is to do it the way Dawkins does, and that is to misrepresent the enemy, set up a straw man. And that's what you find them doing here. I mean, what Jesus had said was this, the days will come when there will not be one stone left upon another that will not be thrown down. He wasn't saying, I want you to demolish the temple. What he was saying to the people was, if you don't accept the Messiah, there'll come a day when somebody else will come and destroy your temple and your city for you. As in fact, it happened in AD 70 when the Romans came and did that very thing. On another occasion, in John chapter 2, he said, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. But he was talking not about the physical temple, the building, he was talking about himself, his body, and saying that his body would be destroyed and he would raise himself up on the third day. Those are Jesus' words. But what the accusers are saying is that Stephen was saying that Jesus would destroy the temple of God. And what they were doing, of course, was trying to incite religious fervor in the people by saying or by projecting the idea that what Stephen was doing was attacking the worship of Israel. See, worship goes to the very heart of an externally religious people. Once there is no heart in religion, the externals become all important. The forms, the buildings, the exterior becomes so important. Once the heart has gone. And what Stephen was doing was precisely that. He was challenging their religious life. He was talking about the fact that in Christ there was a new temple. Christ was the foundation of a new universal spiritual temple, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, made of people, living stones, the Holy Spirit indwelling the church, the people, the Holy Spirit indwelling the Christian, the person. God meeting with his people wherever they meet, in a hovel or in a beautiful building like this. Wherever they meet. Jesus, where'er thy people meet, there they behold thy mercy seat. Where'er they seek thee, thou art found, and every place is hallowed ground. 
You go to Europe and you see these great structures built to look like temples in Jerusalem. And you find inside of them a form of worship designed to feel like temple worship with priests officiating and a theology of sacrifice that ignores the finality of the work of Jesus on the cross. You go to some churches and, and uh, we're reminded that we offer our very best to God and sometimes offering our best to God is confused with excellence, which is a human category and is a good thing, by the way. And we should strive for excellence in what we do. But what we must never allow ourselves to think or imagine is that because our worship is excellent, that way it is more acceptable to God than what is offered by people who do not have the resources to offer excellent worship to God. And that's exactly what God was saying through Samuel when he said to obey is better than sacrifice. To listen better than the heart, than the fat of rams. God looks to the heart. And Stephen was exposing that. And so he's framed by God's enemies, just like his master was. And then lastly, he's touched by God's glory. Because gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was the face of an angel. They're looking intently at him. They see a transformation take place in him. This doesn't happen very much in the New Testament. But it tells us that he looked like someone who was inspired by and in touch with God and who had been touched by the glory of God. This is not something you can manufacture. You can't go home tonight and go into your room and shut the door and pray and hope that you'll come out the next morning with your face all shiny and bright. This does not happen. This is a supernatural thing. And the reason it's important is this is a crucial moment for the authorities in Jerusalem. This is their last shot. This is their last chance. The gospel is going to leave Jerusalem, go around the world. Before it leaves, the glory of God shows itself one more time, just as the glory of God had showed itself in the Old Testament. I think of the story, remember, of the glory departing in the book of Ezekiel, departing from Jerusalem. Well, here's the glory of God shining in the face of this individual so that the leaders of Judaism see it there in front of their eyes. They would think immediately of Moses coming down the mountain with the Ten Commandments. You remember when his face shone brightly with the glory of God, we're told the skin in his face shone because he'd been talking with God. Here is Stephen and his face shines as Moses' face shines. This is why what he says next in chapter 7 is so vital for us to understand. Here is a man touched by God. Here is a man speaking a word from God that is of such importance that God hedges this man around with so many phenomena that get our attention. The signs and wonders, the face shining with the glory of God like Moses' face shone. Because he wants to get our attention. He's about to give an exposition that will be crucial and will seal the destiny of Jerusalem and will mark a transition for the world. Let me just say this as I close. Whenever the space shuttle goes up into space, 
It has to be lifted up off the earth by a huge booster rocket. You've watched this happen. Kind of piggybacks on this rocket. Up it goes, and then at a crucial moment, the, the rocket has to be disengaged so that the shuttle can then go into orbit safely around the earth. That booster rocket is vital until that moment. It would be lethal after that moment. It would spell disaster for the shuttle and the end of the mission and the end of the lives of the people in that shuttle. Lethal, uh, vital beforehand, lethal afterwards. This is that moment in the life of the church. Judaism, with all its ritual, all its ceremony, all its laws, all its ways, was vital to get to this moment in the history of redemption. Everything that had happened had prepared the way for this moment, the coming and arrival of God's Messiah. Vital to get us there. But the moment has passed. The moment has arrived. The future is now. It could not survive this moment. It had to be jettisoned. If the fulfillment of God's word was going to have an impact on the world. And Stephen is the man to point that out. Stephen is the man that shows us most clearly, perhaps, of all of the people in the book of Acts, that the moment has arrived, that now our relationship with God depends on being in Christ and in Christ alone, that everything before was important but was shadows, and now we have the substance. Everything before was important but it was the anticipation. Now we have the realization. Everything before was looking and pointing and forward to the real thing. Now we have the real thing in Christ. So don't put your trust in what you do. Put your trust in him. Don't rely on religion or exterior things. Rely on him. You take your stand along with Stephen and the glorious company of the martyrs. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would write your word in our heart that we might not sin against you. We pray that you would bring glory to your name as we continue in our worship now. In Jesus' name, amen.